the book of Jonah, chapter 3. As Robin has said, we are continuing our studies in this little book of Jonah. And tonight we've reached chapter 3. Let's start our reading at verse 10 of chapter 2. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly, exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen, and be God blessed to us that reading from his word. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? O Lord, you are the real God, the living and true God. We have read how the pagan Ninevites believed you. And that is our prayer for ourselves this evening. As we hear you speaking to us through your word, we pray that we may believe you. May we accept that it is your word and may we act upon it for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're looking at this chapter this evening under the title, The Real God is Compassionate. As we've studied the book of Jonah over the past couple of weeks, we've learned that the book has two main characters, Jonah and God. Jonah is a prophet who's commissioned to go to the great Assyrian city of Nineveh and warn its inhabitants of imminent judgment. Jonah refuses the commission. Instead of setting out for Nineveh, 
he boards a ship heading in the opposite direction. When the ship runs into a dreadful storm, he recognizes that the storm is divine retribution for his disobedience, and he asks to be thrown overboard. But instead of drowning, Jonah is miraculously swallowed by a great fish and spends three, no doubt, very uncomfortable days in its belly. There he turns to God in grateful prayer before being vomited out onto dry land. That's Jonah. But the other main character is God. It's God who commissions Jonah to go to Nineveh in the first place. It's God who brings about the storm. It's God to whom the pagan sailors in chapter 1 pray and offer sacrifice. It's God who arranges for the great fish to swallow Jonah. It's God to whom Jonah prays when he's in the belly of the fish. And it's God who makes the fish deposit Jonah onto dry land. God is sovereign. He's in control of all that happens in the book. And he's compassionate. He rescues Jonah from drowning and he brings the pagan sailors into relationship with himself. Here in chapter 3, the focus is very much on God as we see his sovereignty and compassion time and again. He acts as he pleases and shows mercy and kindness to the undeserving. The chapter readily divides into what we could call four main movements. You'll find them set out in your service sheet. First of all, God recommissions Jonah, verses 1 and 2. Secondly, Jonah proclaims God's message of judgment, verses 3 and 4. Thirdly, the Ninevites respond, verses 5 to 9. And fourthly and finally, God relents, verse 10. First of all then, God recommissions Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. When God called on Jonah to go to Nineveh the first time, he disobeyed. He flouted God's call. God was under no obligation to give Jonah a second chance. He could have said to him, you disobeyed me when I asked you to go to Nineveh, but don't think you can frustrate my will. I can get others to do my bidding. You have deprived yourself of the privilege of undertaking this important task. God could have sidelined Jonah in that way, but he didn't. He gave him a second chance. He recommissioned him. And this time Jonah obeyed because he'd learned his lesson. He'd learned that he might wave his puny fist in God's face, but he could no more oppose God's will than a stream can flow upwards. 
Jonah was a believer. He believed in the real God. Didn't he tell the pagan sailors in chapter 1, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He knew his God was the creator of the universe. He knew that he was God in heaven above. And yet he refused to do what God asked him to do. That's what the Bible calls sin. The American D.L. Moody was a great Victorian evangelist. He was once in Edinburgh addressing a large crowd of children. In the course of his address, he asked the rhetorical question, what is sin? He wasn't expecting an answer, but in those days, Scottish children were brought up on the shorter catechism. And one of the questions is, what is sin? And so much to Moody's surprise, a thousand children chanted together, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. The language is a bit dated, but it's a good answer. We sin when we don't do what God tells us to do, and when we do what God tells us not to do. Jonah sinned, but God was compassionate. He didn't write Jonah off. Instead, he gave him a second chance to do what he should have done in the first place. I'm sure that if you're anything like me, you find that extremely encouraging. You see, we're all too aware that we remain sinners for as long as we live. Christians are still sinners for as long as they live. We don't always go God's way. Sometimes, indeed, like Jonah, we sin with what the Bible calls a high hand. We sin quite flagrantly. But God is compassionate. He is compassionate with us as he was with Jonah. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ goes on cleansing from all sin. When we come to the Lord in repentance, we are assured of forgiveness. God doesn't write us off. Even serious sin doesn't mean that we're demoted to the second division. God can restore the years which the locusts have eaten because he's the God of the second, the third, and the umpteenth chance. But perhaps there are two things that are worth saying by way of qualification. One is that God was particularly gracious to Jonah in that he gave him a fresh opportunity to be his messenger to Nineveh. In Jonah's case, God, as it were, restored factory settings. He doesn't always do that. 
If God asks us to do something and we don't do it, that particular opportunity may not come our way again. That doesn't mean that God won't use us in other ways in the future, but it does mean that we miss out on that particular opportunity. And when we sin, we may have to live with the consequences. The second thing I'd like to say is this. God is compassionate. He is gracious. But we must never presume on his grace. We must never allow ourselves to think that sin doesn't matter because God will forgive it anyway. All sin is serious. If we don't think so, it's because we have an inadequate view of God. We mustn't presume, but we mustn't despair either. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God recommissioned Jonah. Secondly, in verses 3 and 4, we see how in response, Jonah proclaims God's message of judgment to the Ninevites. Verse 3 gives us the burden of Jonah's message. Yet forty days, he says, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah had no doubt more to say than that. He would have put God's judgment into context. He would have explained why Nineveh deserved to be destroyed. History tells us that the Ninevites were particularly cruel and ruthless. They didn't worship the real God, and they didn't share his compassion. Jonah's message for the Ninevites was one of judgment. It was in many ways a negative message, an unwelcome message. But it was also a compassionate message. Why do I say that? Well, God could have summarily destroyed Nineveh. He needn't have given the Ninevites any warning. But instead he gave them notice of what was about to happen. In this way they were given the opportunity to repent of their sins and turn to the Lord. The king of Nineveh grasped this. Look at what he says in verse 8 and verse 9. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's a very perceptive comment. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, the king saw that there was at least a possibility that if he and the people reacted appropriately to God's warning, if they acknowledged their sin and pleaded for mercy, judgment might just be averted. It's interesting that Jonah 
doesn't appear to have encouraged the Ninevites to cast themselves in God's mercy. There's no indication that he did. He'd cast himself in God's mercy when he was thrown into the raging sea and was in imminent danger of drowning. But apparently he didn't suggest that the Ninevites call on God in the face of impending judgment. As we shall see next week, that was because Jonah suspected it was God's plan all along to have mercy on the Ninevites. And Jonah didn't approve. He thought the Ninevites deserved God's judgment. And that was that. When his own life was in danger, he acknowledged that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is up to God whom he chooses to save. But Jonah didn't follow that through in the case of the Ninevites. He had decided that they didn't deserve to be saved. He wanted God to rubber stamp what he wanted. It's also interesting that what the king says mirrors what the ship's captain says in verse 6 of chapter 1. You may remember that he wakens the sleeping Jonah with the words, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The ship's captain, at that point a stranger to the real God, realized that in a dire situation such as they were in, there was nothing to be lost in pleading for divine mercy. It mightn't achieve anything, but on the other hand, it was just possible that it would secure rescue. Both the king and the ship's captain saw a glimmer of hope in the desperate situations which confronted them. The king of Nineveh was right to see the warning of impending judgment as conditional. It sounded very unconditional. But actually, it did hold open the possibility that God might be merciful. The Ninevites had 40 days in which to do business with the real God. More than the king knew, God's message of judgment through Jonah was motivated by compassion. There was good news wrapped up in the bad news. That's worth thinking about for a moment. Because the Christian gospel is not unlike that. The gospel is good news. That's what gospel means. Good news. And yet, there's bad news wrapped up in the good news. In fact, we can't understand why the gospel is good news unless we take on board the bad news. Think of that well-known verse in John's Gospel, in John chapter 3, verse 16. God sent his only, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but should have eternal life. 
God loves the world. And he offers us eternal life in his Son. That's good news. But why do we need the good news? Why did God the Father have to send his Son in the first place? Why do we need eternal life? Why do we need to believe in Jesus? Because otherwise we would perish. Left to ourselves, we would be cut off from God and from all that's good forever. That's bad news. In fact, it's the worst possible news. And that's why we need the good news. We have been created in the image of God, but we've rebelled against him and incurred his righteous judgment. Our sin is an affront to God. It's the contradiction of all that he is. And he must punish it. He cannot simply sweep it under the carpet. Left to ourselves, we are all, without exception, heading for inevitable and inescapable judgment. We're destined for hell, where God's wrath is fully unleashed on impenitent sinners. We often speak loosely about the love of God, but the Bible also speaks of God as a consuming fire. It says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is bad news, and it's an integral part of the gospel. But if there's bad news, there's also good news. The backdrop of the bad news helps us to appreciate why the good news is so very good. In his love and mercy, God has provided a way whereby our sin can be punished and paid for, and we can go free. God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came into our world and became a human being. He came as our representative and substitute. He lived the righteous life we should have lived. And he took upon himself all our sin and condemnation. When he died on a Roman cross, he was bearing God's wrath against sin. He paid the price in full. He defeated sin, death and the devil. That's why he was raised to life again. And he is able to offer forgiveness and eternal life to all who will put their trust in him. You see, we need the bad news as well as the good. It's the bad news that makes sense of the good. It's the bad news that explains why we need the good news. It's the bad news which highlights why the good news of the gospel is so urgent. It's a message we cannot afford to ignore. We need to flee from the wrath to come because there's a hell to be shunned as well as a heaven to be gained. Can I ask you this evening, 
Have you faced up to the bad news? The Christian gospel isn't an ethical code. It's a wake-up call regarding coming judgment and the only way to escape it. Jesus isn't simply a great example or a great teacher. He was God in human form, come on a rescue mission. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And if you are a Christian, does the gospel you share with others include the bad news as well as the good? You know, we sometimes say, God loves you. That's true, but it's not the totality of the gospel. We sometimes say things like, with Jesus, you can lead a fulfilled life. That's true, but it's not the totality of the gospel. There's bad news as well as good. And it's particularly difficult nowadays to share the gospel in its totality because our culture shies away from bad news. It doesn't want to hear anything that might upset people. We're expected to be positive and upbeat in our colleges and universities that are moves afoot to create safe spaces, to create an environment where Folk will say nothing that could possibly upset anyone else. Where speakers who have negative messages or what are seen as negative messages are deliberately excluded. So it's not easy to present the gospel in its fullness. We're not meant to cause other folk alarm. But if folk are in genuine danger... Is it really loving to say nothing? Is it really loving to pretend that, well, actually there's no danger, or, or at least we're not supposed to tell you? The gospel message we present to others must be balanced. Of course it must. But it must reflect the bad news as well as the good. And that's a challenge for me, and I'm sure for you. Have you faced up to the bad news if you're not yet a Christian? And if you are a Christian, are you sharing the bad news as well as the good as you have opportunity? Thirdly, we see in this passage how the Ninevites respond. Look with me please at verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The people of Nineveh believed God. These are remarkable words. They, these were pagans and yet they believed God. They accepted that the message which Jonah brought came ultimately from God. And they were convicted by the message and they acted on it. They fasted and put on sackcloth 
showing that they were sorry for the sins which merited God's judgment. And the kings and nobles issued an edict, commanding the people to call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Jonah, the book of Jonah, tells us that there was a city-wide turning to God. That was remarkable. But if you find it almost incredible, remember that Jonah was proclaiming God's message. And God's word accomplishes God's purposes because it's accompanied by God's power. As we, as we shall see in more detail next week, it was God's will to have mercy on the Ninevites. In his compassion, he was using Jonah's message, apparently negative though it was, to convict the Ninevites of their sin and bring them to such an awareness of their need that they cast themselves on God's mercy. God's word is powerful. Down through history, there have been many instances of God's word affecting whole communities. In June 1630, a celebrated revival took place in the village of Shots in Lanarkshire. A young probationary minister, the Reverend John Livingston, preached a sermon in the open air in the churchyard. And it's thought that God used that one sermon to change the hearts of 500 people. The 18th century evangelist George Whitfield is arguably the greatest evangelist Britain has ever produced. When the pulpits of Bristol were closed to Whitfield, he started preaching in the open air to the hardened coal miners in nearby Kingswood. As they came up out of the pits, their faces blackened with coal. On the first day, about 200 miners gathered round. And as he spoke, Whitfield noticed pale channels, pale streaks on the cheeks of some of them. They were weeping as they came under the power of God's word. The men invited Whitfield to come back the following day to speak to their friends and families. About 2,000 people gathered. Five days later, Whitfield preached to 5,000 people. Two days after that, to over 10,000. And latterly, he was preaching to a crowd estimated at 20,000. You see, that's the power of God's word. When God chooses, his power can accompany his word in such a way that whole communities are gripped and influenced for good. Here in the West, we have not seen that, at least to a significant extent, for many years. But God can do it again. And we must pray that he will. Jonah's message came with power to the hearts of the Ninevites. They believed God. They hadn't heard about the real God before, but they took him at his word and pleaded 
for mercy. How are you responding to God's word to you in the gospel? It may be you're hearing it for the first time. It may be you're hearing it for the 101st time. But the question is, how are you responding? Are you taking it seriously? Can it be said of you, as it was said of the Ninevites, that you believe God? Fourthly and finally, we see in verse 10 how God relents. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. In response to their wholehearted repentance, God was merciful to the Ninevites, and he didn't destroy their city. Disaster was averted. From a human perspective, it, seems that, it seemed that God had changed his mind. From God's perspective, I think things were a little different. I think it was always God's plan to spare Nineveh. We learn more about that next week when some loose ends are tied up in chapter 4. Here in chapter 3, we are given the human perspective. God warns the Ninevites. In response, they turn from their evil ways and seek his mercy, and God relents. The important thing to note is that human actions and decisions are real. God doesn't steamroller our decisions. Our decisions and actions are real and they have consequences. That's something we need to grasp. God promises to reveal himself to those who earnestly seek him. Jesus promises never to turn away anyone who comes to him. If we repent of our sin, if we turn from going our own way and put our trust in the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. That's all we need to know. If we do our part, we can be sure that God will do his. I think it was David Livingston who said of God, his is the word of a gentleman. If we do our part, God will do his. Our decisions, our actions have consequences. Jonah's rescue by means of the great fish was an amazing miracle. But don't you think it was an even greater miracle that God saved an entire city from destruction? Why did he do it? Because he's compassionate. He cares for lost people. God showed compassion in recommissioning Jonah. He showed compassion in warning the Ninevites through Jonah of impending judgment. He showed compassion in working powerfully in the hearts of the Ninevites through his word. And he showed compassion in sparing Nineveh from destruction.
you see the real God is compassionate. He is still compassionate. And he will receive all who come and come to him by faith. That's what makes the gospel, despite the bad news that it includes, eminently good news. Shall we pray? O Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, that though we deserve your judgment, you have made it possible for sinners like us to be brought into your family in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that he is and all that he has done for us as sinners who deserve your wrath. We pray that we may believe you and respond to the good news of the gospel in repentance and faith. Help us to share that gospel with others. Help us to have confidence in that gospel and to live in the light of it and in the good of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.